history of the church is littered with attempts from the evil one, the devil himself. His attempts to destroy the church, the Christian faith, all the work that Jesus Christ has come to do. And one of the more obvious ways was through the sword and the hammer in the form of the persecution and the untold suffered meted out to believers. We saw a little bit of this in the film that the Apostle Paul. Coupled with this was the, the burning and destruction of the Scriptures, Holy Writ. But there was also another more subtle way that the evil one tried to destroy the church and that was through the different and various heresies. It was through the pen rather than the sword or the hammer. It was through the pen and the writings which was used to discredit, dilute the Christian faith so that people, so that believers will slowly, their, their light will slowly diminish so that they, that they, they didn't know at the end what they believed anymore. So that when the persecution came, because there were waves of persecution, one after the other, and then the heresies, and then the persecution, and then the heresies, there was one or the other. So it was like a sift that happened so that only true believers in the end, in the words of Scripture, the faithful remnant, would remain. It caused division amongst the leaders, the pastors, the early church fathers because there were those who considered some of these truths that we simply cannot compromise while others say, well, what's the big deal? What is the problem here? We just need to remain united. It doesn't matter if you believe what you believe. What is the problem? We have the richness, the treasures that were kept and the, the declarations that were made in the different councils and others to maintain the purity of the Gospels in its various forms. And the Gospel of John, particularly this first chapter, is central to our understanding of Christ, the Trinity, who he is, what he has done. While those who kept the faith, irrespective of the cost, they suffered and all of that, we remember them. Whereas those who espoused different ideas and started to bring in ideas that were going to destroy our faith, they were slowly kicked out of the church. Many of these exponents, heretical teachers, were once considered Christian leaders. But over time, their teaching started going away on a tangent. It wasn't as if they went right off. It was only by degrees. Very subtle at first. But a few kilometres down the road, they were way, way off course. All the different cults that you see today are simply reinventions of the old heresies. 
just a couple of days ago, I was having a look at some of the different cults and heresies that emerge in the early church. There's between, there's more than a dozen. There's more than a dozen. And all the different cults that you see today are simply reinventions of these old heresies. What's even more dangerous is when mainstream, mainstream denominations from the pulpit start espousing these ideas and the people on the pew cannot differentiate what is taught from the pulpit because there is not attuned enough. Or simply, a lot of people simply don't care. Well, what's the big deal? What are you going on about? And that's where danger starts to happen. And this is how even from the pulpit today we're accepting a lot of these ideas because we have to be tolerant. We have to be understanding. We have to be loving. But at what cost? At what cost? At the centre of the attacks on the church is the person of Jesus Christ, like I said, who he is and what he did. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the first few verses in the Gospel of John, otherwise known as the prologue to the Gospel. We now come to the climax of the prologue, the references to the incarnation in the previous verses that we have looked at. We're a little veiled in a kind of way, so much so that I suppose any other faith, any other religion out there might feel at ease even accepting these things as just, okay, so that's, that's okay, we, we, we can understand that, we'll accept that. But now comes the break with all others. This word, the agent of creation, the indescribable one, has become a creature within his own creation. So let's take a little closer look at Jesus. First of all, his identity. His identity. Jesus' identity. And uh, the first part of verse 14, his humanity. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When you stop and think, the word became flesh. I know, we've been hearing it since early childhood and it just sort of flows off the tongue like nothing, but stop and think about it and it is an absolutely staggering statement. It describes Jesus' true humanity. In verses 3, in verse 6, in verse 10, in verse 12 that we have looked at, the same word in the original Greek language, the same verb is used that is used to describe the coming into being of the world, all of creation and the universe coming into being, of, of coming of John the Baptist, of the, of the becoming of children of God. And now that same verb, the same word, becomes that which, we has, which he has never been before. He now becomes the one by whom all creation takes its being becomes what? Flesh. He becomes flesh. He didn't just take the appearance of humanity, that was one of the early heresies. No, he actually became flesh. 
He didn't simply put on a body like a new set of clothes. Jesus became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. I'm going to open this stuff a little bit more as we go. He also made his dwelling among us. The word is he tabernacled among us. Unlike the angels, because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament we have angels who come and visit in, in different ways. But they didn't stay around for long. Here Jesus pitched his tent among us. He hung around for a while, a long time. It's, it's a word used of the tent meeting when the, the people of God, the Israelites, were, were moving around from one place to the other as they were in the desert. Eventually, that tabernacle became the temple representing the place where God met with his people Israel. Now, Jesus came to tabernacle to set up his tent, to live with us. We know that God understands the situations we face because we know that he made us and sees everything that happens to us. But more than that, he understands because he has been to earth and experience life as a human being. It was a genuine entering. It didn't just look like it. It was a genuine entering into all of those experiences to which our bodies expose, are exposed to. Hunger and thirst, weariness and pain, seeing and hearing, Flogging and crucifixion, death and denial. The word became flesh in every sense of the word, so to speak. He felt the searing heat of the sun, the uncertainty of homelessness. Emotionally, he endured the tension of disagreements, the pain of betrayal the abandonment by his disciples and the ongoing threat of violence hanging over his head. Jesus experienced the joys of friendship and love as well as the worst problems that we face here on earth. Because he knows, because he understands, because he has overcome, he provides hope for you and me. We can never say to God, you don't know what it's like. We can never say that. He is the wonderful counsellor, as described by Isaiah, who listens to our concerns, who intercedes for us. He is the one who is there for us in every way. He is the one who can say, I've been through that, I understand. 
his humanity. Now we move to his deity. We're going to jump to verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and in the and he's in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This verse turns attention to his deity. Deity means his godness. He was truly man and yet fully almighty, omnipotent, infinite, eternal God. Unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness and his truth. We don't merely admire him a great man. We adore him as the God-man. When he became flesh, it does not mean that he who was God is no longer God because he is now man. That's another heresy. The Word did not cease to be God when the Word became flesh. His deity was not laid aside, but the same one who was the Divine Son is now the Divine Son with an additional nature, a human nature. Fully God, fully man, Hard concept to really take in. Let me give you an example of the type of dangers that the early church had to go through and centuries later, this is the stuff that used to keep them occupied. Verbs and words and inflections and understandings and all this type of stuff that you know, with the stuff that you study at uh, theological college and all of this that is going to really drive you up the wall. But I'm just going to give you the type of example, the type of dangerous stuff that our early brothers had to deal with. But this is a much more modern example. This only goes back 300 years ago. These are the words of a well-known hymn. After this, a few of you are going to hate me. I, am, I guarantee you. Because what I'm about to do is sacrilege as far as you're concerned. This is the word. Alright? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Name the hymn, please. And can it be? Who wrote it? Which one? Charles Wesley. Okay, Charles Wesley. Who wrote, Charles Wesley wrote about 7,000 hymns. Alright? Where, where does Paul Mosachuk and others might have an issue with this, with these words? Where do you think the issue is? Yeah, what's the problem, George? And yet here, good old Charlie is saying he emptied himself of everything but love. It sounds great. I love it. I, 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 I find these words amazing, poetic and everything else. But is it true? Problem. Ding, 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 ding. The alarm goes off, doesn't it? 
and, and you say, well, how could you? How could you destroy this hymn for me? You are so cruel. How dare you? I'm never going there again. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, surely. This is not a pop song. But one of the most important ways to actually teach theology from the early days was through songs and hymns, wasn't it? So, we, this is why we need to keep our eyes open, eyes and ears open to what is being taught, even through the lyrics and the songs that we sing. Sounds good, especially in the light of Philippians 2.7, which says, what does Philippians 2.7 say? Emptied him, emptied himself. But you see, it's it's not of everything. He left his throne above and came to earth, but still remained God. And yes, there were some limitations to his. Deity, his godness. Jesus couldn't be in two places at the same time. Right? Just a small example of what he left behind. He was still God. Uh, Some modern hymnals, by the way, um, have solved this issue with Charlie and uh, put the words, emptied himself and came in love, rather than of all but love. Anyway, you can see why the early church was so, was so uh, dedicated to keeping the truth, in, in the essential truth of the gospel. Another aspect of all this is how the early ch- Christian church wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what happened to the Trinity when Jesus became flesh? And they concluded that there was no alteration in the nature of the Trinity. It's not as if the Trinity suddenly became the the duality, Father and Spirit. No, the Trinity is still one God in three persons, but the second person is now God-man, not simply God the Son, but God-Man and God-Man forever. Here's the Lamb before the throne, who, a Lamb who was wounded. Yes, the second person of the Trinity took on an additional nature to himself. This, of course, was ultimately for the sake of redemption. For he must come as man and die for men, but he, must, but he must also be the divine person in order that his sacrifice must have infinite merit. It must satisfy the wrath of the Father, sufficient to cover all the sins of mankind. Let's look at Jesus' historicity. Verse 15, we go back to verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said 
He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now John the Baptist announced, highlighted, declared, the, the, you know, prepared the way onto which the miracle of the incarnation would explode. He's pointing to Jesus. And, and Jesus is standing right there bearing powerful witness and stating the fact. He's saying, this is him. He is right here. This is him. In a real place, in a real time, he's a real person standing in your midst. Jesus is also central in global history. It is interesting today that in mainstream media, I don't know if it's mainstream, but it's media anyway, people are questioning whether Jesus actually lived or not. They're looking at the historical Jesus. And even if they do find some person with resemblance of a historical Jesus, uh, then, you know, was he really God? Does it, do we have to care? So What? that type of stuff. But for us, he was a real person in real history. It is true truth, which means that the Christian faith is historical and therefore cannot be simply dismissed from the public sphere and into the realm of the private in particular. You know, the... the, it's true for you, but not for me, type of thing. If Jesus came in history, it's true for everybody. It's a historical fact. It's not simply good enough, which is what is happening today, that you remove all the stuff to do with Christianity from the, the public sphere and, and, and to that which is objective and becomes something subjective dogma. In years past... We never questioned BC and AD before Christ and year of our Lord. But now, in many places, it's before the common, common what? Common era. Because they cannot bring themselves to say the words before Christ. Yet the coming of Christ is a, is a fact as true as Mount Everest. It's there. God Almighty took flesh, walked on the streets of Judea. And that's one of the things that everybody who visits Jerusalem and the whole region over there, you, you, in the back of your mind, was Jesus really here? Was he, was, was he here? Really? I'm, I'm, I'm actually walking where Jesus was. Despite the crowds, despite the noise, despite all that stuff, you've got to say, wow. And this is a fact that remains true for everyone, everywhere, irrespective of your social level, the colour of your skin, Jesus coming into the world is an international event. We preach him 
to all, not because it works for me and maybe it works for you. We preach him, we preach him to all because he really came, he really lived and died and rose again and now reigns forevermore. It's a fact. And Jesus is obviously central in biblical history, in verses 16 to 17. I love these, these words. I love them. I'll explain. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Such a marvellous, wonderful declaration. A better translation, and there are a few different translations because everybody is sort of struggling to get the, the, to the bottom of what it's actually said here. A better translation might be grace for grace, grace replacing grace, grace instead of grace, old grace giving way to new grace, is what he's saying. The grace of one era of salvation of history is giving way to another. The grace of a fuller era. My father used to say, it's, he used to explain it this way, in the Old Testament, it is the flower that is closed and in the New Testament it is open so everybody can see its beauty. The, the grace that came through Moses giving way to its fulfilment in the grace that comes in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. While there is a sense in which we, we contrast between grace and law, so much so, again, another of the early sects is other, I think it's called the, the Montanists who used to go to such an extreme that they say in the Old Testament there is an one God and then in the New Testament is a new God. They're two different gods. But you see, the law itself was a God's gracious gift to man. We cannot have sinful man simply doing what they want to do. We see the results of that everywhere. So he gave us the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws of how we are to live in this world of sin. The law that told us that killing another human being, murdering another human being is wrong. That committing adultery is wrong. Is that still true today? Of course it is. That the sanctity of life is important. Is that true for all? All times? Of course it is. This is why John is trying to say here, he's saying that the law is not devoid of grace, rather through Christ and the new covenant, God manifests greater grace. John can say this in Christ because in, in Christ we have received grace on top of grace. Um, I don't know, you understand ice cream. Um, you, you get a serving and he gives you a double. Oh, thank you. 
That's the type of language. It's the overflow of grace upon grace. Moses was the instrument through whom the grace of law was given. Jesus Christ is the instrument through whom grace upon grace is given. A top-up. But how magnificent. It's just amazing. What this means is that what Moses promised, Jesus performed. What Moses typified, Jesus exemplified. What Moses taught, Jesus embodied. The point is, Jesus is the central fact, not just of world history, but Bible history. All the pages point to him in one way or another. The coming of Jesus is the key, the central locking system that unlocks everything else. Both truth and reality. Truth and grace. Someone with that truth in your heads at the moment. Contrast to this. Somebody described their life like this, their troublesome life like this. They said, and I quote, each day is just like yesterday warmed up. Each day is just like yesterday warmed up. Yes, it seems like life sometimes dishes up a diet of old problems, disguised as new ones. Add to that the same routine of life when the fullness of life, the joy of life is all but gone. The, the routine, the, you know, is that all there is type of stuff. The movie many of you would have seen, it's one of my favourite movies, Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, built on this premise, people caught in the rut of the, the sameness, the, the boredom of everyday life and they simply, totally immersed in themselves, they cannot get out. They cannot get out of the jail of life and even in the movie, even suicide attempts, you know, every morning he just wakes up. Again, he has to live it all again. Many people in the world, and I would dare to say that even that mostly is as a problem of the modern world in Western society where many people live like this. And it was into this tiresome, troublesome world that Jesus came. The old King James has it this way, he says, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Grace for grace. He came full of grace and truth and he supplies us with grace for grace. Let me explain this expression. The the Greek word translated for literally means instead of. Instead of. And somebody described it this way. They said, imagine standing on the banks of a river and contemplating the flow of the waters. A minute passes and then another. Is it the same stream? Is it? 
Is that the same stream? Yes, it is. But is it the same water? No. No. The old water has been displaced. It's gone downstream by new water. Water instead of, in place of water, more water. The same is true of grace. Your life and mine may carry yesterday's problems, but remember, God's grace is not only sufficient, but his mercies are new every morning. That is grace upon grace, topped up, overflowing, amazing grace. This is what you need. This is what you've got to get your heads and your hearts around. This is the stuff to help you realise that whatever it is you're going through is, is, is in the overall scheme of things is, is not even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. But John gives us a, a wonderful glimpse of that glory. And the supply is inexhaustible. We're going to look at the, the woman at the well later on. The water that I give, you know, it never runs out. It's always there. It is life-giving. There's always a fresh supply where that comes from. And lastly, we look at Jesus' mission, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Again, one of those translations, depending according to what Bible translation you have, the wording there is a little bit different, but hopefully expressing the same idea. One challenge for us humans is that God is invisible. We can't see him. And no matter how much we try to depict him, We know that God doesn't look like anything. As we have just sung, he is indescribable. We trust in a God we cannot see and more than that, we are actually strictly forbidden to attempt to make any image or statue or or, or whatever to anything that resembles God. Strictly forbidden, Ten Commandments. Nothing, this is because nothing in heaven or earth comes close. It comes close, nothing. No one has ever seen God, but we can know him because God, the only begotten, has made him known, revealed him. The word John uses is the same one from which we get our word for exegesis. Exegesis. Exegesis is the critical explanation of the interpretation of a text, all right? uh, especially when we come to scripture. It's the critical explanation of a text. Well, Jesus is the exegesis of the Father, is what John is saying to us. He is the exposition of the heart of God. 
And from earliest days, of course, man has tried to find a way to get to God. Just about uh, all world religions are built on this premise that in order to get to heaven, your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds and if that's the case, then you're going to make it. So everybody assumes, Uncle Bob, Uncle Bill, Auntie May and everybody else, in heaven. And why are they in heaven? Oh, he's a good bloke. He's a good bloke. I don't think, you know, I don't think Pete will deny him entry just because, you know, he had a, did a few stupid things in his life. What he's saying is he was a better bloke than he was a bad bloke. Um, is that the way the Bible works? No. No. The Bible declares our mortal problem. Not a matter of whether you sinned a lot or sinned a little. You merely have to sin once. And the declaration is there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Falling short means we cannot get there. It is impossible. On our own merits, no matter how noble, no matter how grandiose, no matter how much you sacrifice your life for others, it is not going to get you to heaven because of all the things that you've done. It doesn't work like that. It is because we can't get to God that God has come down all the way down to us to get to us in Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus that we can know him. And it is in Jesus that we can rest. And it is in Jesus that we have to believe. There's a story of a a ruler who ruled in Persia. He was a good and wise king. He loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. And often he would dress in the clothes of a working man or a beggar and went out on the streets and even into the homes of the poor. No one who he visited thought that he was their ruler, he was their king. And one time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food the poor man ate. He spoke kind and cheerful words to him and then he left. Some time passed and he visited the poor man again but now in his full regalia as a king. And he said to him, I am your king. And the king thought that now this man that he visited would surely ask for a favour, at least, at the very least, you know, some type of rich gift or something. But he didn't. Instead, this poor fellow said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark 
dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, perhaps, you have given your rich gifts, but to me, you have given of yourself. Isn't that what it's about? Our King has given of himself for us. I'm going to finish this morning by singing a classic old hymn. If you want to check its theology, go right ahead. Um, I'm not going to pick on this one. It's immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus came to make the invisible God visible. Amen.